0: Thank <laughs> you.
1: everyone. Welcome to Ground Waves. It's uh, been two long weeks since we've been together and it's great to be back. Just a quick announcement. We seem to be having some technical troubles um, live streaming to Facebook. So if you know anyone who's looking for us there, you might want to invite them to come onto our zoom. So again, welcome back. You know, among the blockbusters of Jewish teachings that speak to social justice and mutual responsibility lies Pirkei the 14th Mishnah of the first chapter, which reads famously, if I'm not for myself, who is for me? But if I'm only for myself, what am I? And if not now, when? It's a powerful statement, which is why it's recalled so often, but it contains even deeper lessons that many realize. If I'm not for myself, who is for me? It's usually understood as the foundational teaching about the need to take care of ourselves. As the saying goes, if we don't love ourselves, we can't love anyone else. The Misilat Sharim, which is an ethical or Musser text composed by, Rabbi Chaim, by Moshe Chaim Lutzato in the 18th century offers a deeper reason. And it says in these very challenging words, if one is not watchful over themselves, the Holy One will certainly not watch over them. For if one gives no heed to themselves, who should give heed to them? Those are tough words. We're taught that every human being is created, Selam Elohim, in the divine image. We organize our ethical, spiritual, communal, and political lives around this conception of others. But according to Misilat Yishirim, when it comes to ourselves, we have to cue God as to our own unique worthiness a challenging lesson if we have deep and strong self-esteem and live our particular stories with pride god and by extension others will see us will recognize us will respect us and care for us but if we suffer from self-loathing and self-doubt and diminish ourselves the message we may inadvertently send could be that we're not worthy of another person's respect and concern the lubavitcher rebbe used this to teach the lesson of jewish pride The Jews need to have self-respect if we wish for the world to respect us. Our guest tonight, whom I'll introduce in a few minutes, Ruth Messinger, is part of a long line of teachers, including Maimonides, who understand the primacy of helping people access not just the physical or financial resources they may need, but helping people cultivate their dignity and their self-esteem. If I am not for myself, who is for me? This isn't only about self-care, in case no one else is looking out for me. It's about the inalienable right and responsibility of every human being to exude their own unique dignity, pride, and self-worth. Helping someone come home to themselves in this way is one of the greatest gifts that we can give another human being. <inaudible> if I'm only for myself, what am I? This line is used often to explain how Jewish values endorse neither selfishness nor selflessness. But there's more to learn from it. Even when it comes to chesed, when we genuinely wish to exercise our own commitment to being agents of love and compassion, we can't do so simply on our own terms. The chesed we do can't be about us. We have to respond genuinely to the needs of the one we wish to embrace and support. Rabbi Avraham Yachnis, a contemporary teacher of Musar, of Jewish ethical literature, explains it this way. If you're walking down the street and someone is walking beside you carrying this large heavy box, and you offer to help the person carry that box, that's not chesed. That's not loving kindness. You'd simply be a terrible person not to offer someone help in that situation. What counts as chesed is when you're walking the opposite way from someone carrying this big, heavy box and you turn around to help carry that load in the direction that the other person is going. That's chesed. And if not now, when? the quintessential teaching about lost opportunities, about waiting too long, about missing our chances. We've entered a season of introspection, this month of Elul leading us in just a few days to Rosh Hashanah and beyond to Yom Kippur, a time that reminds us that words and gestures between people cannot be postponed because nobody knows how long we'll have the time or the strength, the inclination, or the resources to give to people the way we wish to give. It's solid wisdom, which is why it's often repeated. And we've been immersed in its urgent call now, especially in the time of COVID, with so many getting ill and even dying prematurely, alone. We have not been able to care for our loved ones or say goodbye in the way that we always assumed we would. Usually this line is here to bring home the point that we don't always have the opportunities we assume we'll have, and so we need to act now. We can't wait to work on our laziness or to do business with our indifference. Our personal growth may hopefully yet come, but the needs of the hour cannot be delayed. The Spanish Rabbi Yonah ben Avraham took it one step further. If I don't work at perfecting myself today, I may not get the chance tomorrow. But even if I do get the chance tomorrow, if I wait, I will have lost the chance to be an agent of love and healing today to those whose pain needs healing now. And that chance, that chance to care for another human being and in so doing to show honor and respect not only to them but to the, to the divine, that chance to do that chesed right now, today, will never return and will forever be lost. Done. you're muted. Thank you. In many ways, Ruth Messinger needs no introduction, but hers is such an extraordinary story to tell that it can't be passed up. Ruth Messinger, President of American Jewish World Service from 1998 to July of 2016, is currently the organization's inaugural global ambassador. In this role, Ruth is continuing her incredible work of engaging rabbis, interfaith leaders, and others to speak out on behalf of those who are oppressed and persecuted around the world. Ruth has been a tireless advocate for social change. She's been a visionary as she mobilizes communities throughout the United States to promote human rights. She has sat on the State Department's Religion and Foreign Policy Working Group, is currently a member of the World Bank's Moral Imperative Working Group on Extreme Poverty, also is currently doing international human rights work for AIDS Free World and and serving as the inaugural social justice fellow at JTS. She is also the social justice activist in residence at the JCC in Manhattan. Ruth has been honored for her leadership with awards from numerous national Jewish organizations and honorary degrees from five major American rabbinical seminaries. She was named one of the 10 most inspiring women religious leaders of 2012 by the Huffington Post and the sixth most influential Jew in the world by the Jerusalem Post and was listed annually on the Forwards Forward 50 for nearly a decade. Ruth is an active member of the Society for the Advancement of Judaism, her congregation in New York City on the Upper West Side, and continues to serve on the boards of numerous important organizations. She holds a BA from Radcliffe College and MSW from the University of Oklahoma. She's married to Andrew and has three children, eight grandchildren and two great-grandchildren. Ruth was also a leader on my trip to Guatemala a few years ago when I was a a Global Justice Fellow with American Jewish World Service. Sitting next to Ruth on the bus, as we wound our way up and over, around, and through cities and villages filled with people striving for justice and dignity, chatting about social activism as an expression of connection to the holy and to the divine, these were some of the most lasting and meaningful memories, some of the most inspiring memories of that journey. Ruth, I am so honored and so proud to have you with us tonight on Ground Waves. welcome. Can you unmute yourself? Okay, just waiting.
2: There you go. There you okay.
1: we are. Welcome, Ruth. I'm, sa-
2: I'm just was saying, thank you, Deanie. but the, the, the memories of Guatemala were perfect. The rest of the introduction was much too long, and I now have three great-grandchildren, one of whom is living and is Great. six
1: months old. Fantastic, muzzle tov. Thank so you. Ruth, let's let's jump right in. We have so much to talk about with you and to learn from you. This may be uh, an impossible question to answer, but of the many, many roles that you've played in the Jewish world and beyond, which do you feel has been the most impactful, the most fulfilling to you?
2: So I'm glad you said it. it's an impossible question because it's an impossible question to answer. Um, just one minute of history, which is that I did most of my work as an organizer, as a change agent, and as elected an elected official, not in the Jewish world. So in that life, I did it as a Jew, of course, but not specifically in the Jewish world. And in that life, <clears throat> I would say that I treasured most my time as a local elected official, because government is a place where it is possible to work with people, to make change, and to build toward greater equity. And I want people to know that about the world of politics. In the Jewish community, obviously, my work at AJWS stands out. It was the place where I was consciously putting my Judaism into practice, helping people who face immense challenges, helping them make changes in their own lives. But I think mostly it was the most impactful part of my career because I learned every day from the people in the developing world about what true leadership and moral courage looks like. And those are lessons that I've tried to bring back to everything I do in the world, whether at the JCC or in my personal life or in politics in America.
1: Ruth, um, I appreciate your answer and the way you've uh, used it to also instruct us about not just our possibilities, but our responsibilities. There's a famous Jewish teaching which says that we are not required to finish the task of perfecting the world, but that we also can't desist from it. We can't turn away from it. You have been devoted more deeply and put more effort into this work than anybody I know trying to heal the world throughout your whole life. You know better than anybody how endless the task is. You know better than anybody the obstacles that stand in the way. Ruth, I'm sure lots of people join me in wanting to know how do you keep going? How do you keep motivating yourself to invest the time and the effort in so many ways in a in a project that is almost impossible to complete?
2: So, um, Dini, um, last night my husband was looking over my shoulder as I was looking at your questions. And when I got to this question about what is it that keeps you going, he said, tell him that's the gin and tonic that I make for you. at <laughs> are known at 445, which is, which is not untrue. <laughs> Um, But but first of all, I want to take the quote seriously. Um, I want to say that that we are really, you know, we we sometimes repeat these um, texts without focusing in on their, on exactly what they're saying. So I want to say we are told not to imagine that we can, that any one of us is going to complete the task, but that nevertheless, it's our purpose to do what we can to move toward justice. So just knowing that doesn't doesn't make it easy to do it, but it does frame it because so many of us approach so many things in our lives, you know, from making a meal to taking a test to reading a book to bigger projects saying like, I have to get it done. And this is an instance in which we are told, don't fool yourself, you're not going to get it done. In your lifetime, it may well not get done. But you have an obligation to do your piece and to work toward it. So. I want to be serious now about a piece of my answer, which I alluded to a few minutes ago. I take inspiration in doing this work from many of the people that I've been privileged to know and work with. And they are, you met some of them, Dini. they are people who do this work under much more difficult odds. Women who are organizing farmers to defend their land rights at the same time as they are, those women are being attacked by thugs hired by multinational corporations who want to take the land away from them. LGBTIQ activists who are organizing in countries where by law they can be put to death and where some of them have been. And here at home, leaders like John Lewis, us Scholle, one of my heroes, who spent a lifetime fighting racism and trying to give more meaning to our democracy. But I also want to say that I take additional strength in in continuing to work on the task from the extraordinary colleagues that I have in this work, not only our project partners overseas, but the people that I work with every day at the JCC, at the Jewish Theological Seminary, at American Jewish World Service, and in several organizations where I like to lend a hand. And then finally, I take inspiration from my children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren because I would very much like for them to inherit a better world, a world in which they can continue the the tasks that are required of us, but have moved further toward justice.
1: Ruth, do you think that some of what you've just said can be operationalized to help sustain the efforts and the commitment of people who have just in the last couple of months awakened to the urgency of this work? Um,
2: well, I think so. And I think that's that's part of, I think that's why I think that quote um, is so important and, and should be used in, in secular connections as well, because we're so, so many of us are so, I don't know, trained is the right word, brought up to believe, you know, taught, like, we just have to finish this. And this is a very different message. Um, and it's powerful to me that it comes from our text, but I think it's a message that we should try to convey civically also. That is the work of democracy is a daily piece of in and out work, requires people to organize, it requires people to vote, it requires God willing for us to teach civics so that people have some understanding of how government works and what they should be doing to get something done. But this is continuing work. It's not work that's going to get done and the more we could do to get that idea across to everybody. You know, you need to step in, you need to do your piece. But but it's not, first of all, it's not going to get done. But second of all, maybe more, a little more to the point, with, and with all due respect, you don't do your thing in the world by going to one women's march. You don't do your thing in the world by remembering to vote, even if you, God willing, remember to vote every year in every election. Um, no, there's always going to be a task before you and your job is um, not to complete the work but not to refuse to
1: participate. Such an important lesson to prevent people from feeling overwhelmed, um, which too often is also, you know, used consciously or subconsciously as an excuse not even to get started.
2: Right, so um, let me just say a word about that. Everyone feels overwhelmed some of the time and we're living in a time where it's possible to feel overwhelmed five minutes after you get up in the morning. So I'm not saying that you can't feel overwhelmed, but I am saying that none of us can retreat to the convenience of being overwhelmed. So you're gonna acknowledge that you feel overwhelmed, but it's much too comfortable to just say essentially or metaphorically like I'm overwhelmed, I'm pulling the covers over my head, I can't deal with this, so I'm not gonna try. And that's think That's the essence of that quote is there's always something you can do, and if you can acknowledge feeling badly about the state of the world, you can acknowledge feeling overwhelmed. But then you have to, you know, find find some companions, um, find people who want to work with you, find work that there is to be done, and dig in. You'll feel better.
1: Yeah, Ruth, how do you understand social action and justice work within the framework of your? Jewish identity and not just your humanity, in 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 what ways does this work, which has defined your personal and professional, I feel distinctly Jewish, and in what ways does it feel fundamentally human?
2: So, uh, Dini, I think the answer to that is complicated, because I think there are many people um, who aren't Jewish and many people who don't have a faith connection who see this as essential work in the world, and they go about and do it. So I think it has a little bit just to do with each of us for sort of how we were shaped and how we came to this work. So for many years, I imagined working for change in the world as a social worker, which is my professional background, as a community activist and organizer, as an elected official, and I was doing what needed to be done in each of those jobs. But I knew that my original motivations for doing the work came to me from my Judaism, from Jewish teachings that spoke to me, some of which we've mentioned, from my mother who worked at the Jewish Theological Seminary, and from Rabbi Abraham Ketel, who was a professor at the seminary when my mother worked there, whom I got to know. So I would go out and talk when I was an elected official about the work we needed to do, whether it was to fix schools or clean up parks or improve healthcare. I would use secular language and analysis, but I would occasionally tell audiences both both Jewish audiences and non-Jewish audiences, that for me, my faith was the origin of my work. And then, as people know if they followed that ridiculously long biography, somewhat to my surprise, I ended up working in the Jewish community when I left government and went to AJWS. Um, so I took that drive and vision to the Jewish community. And then that gave me this great freedom, which I didn't feel I had in government, to Root all my explanations of why, of, of why Jews should care about poor, poor health for women in Peru, or child marriage in India, or land theft in Kenya in Jewish texts. So I got to spend, and I continue to spend, a great deal of time talking to Jews about the ways in which our faith, as I understand it, compels us to work for justice, not only at home, but abroad, not only with Jews, but with everyone in the world in need.
1: Ruth, do you feel that social action is enough of a priority in the Jewish world? Oh, I that's a setup question. If I was ever
2: asked one, no, it's not nearly enough of a priority. Um, and I think, and I think I really, you know, whether you're the rabbi, Dini, but I think I get to, you know, claim text here. We are, we are told. That um, the rabbis argued whether study or, te- or action was more important and the conclusion, which is sort of a wonderful play on words, is that study is more important because it leads to action. So the answer is no, action does not play nearly enough of a role. We're all going to be someplace, probably on our computer, um, during the Hagim, and we're going to fast, many of us. We're going to read the words on a piece of paper that says, this is not the fast that I require of you. Um, I don't care whether you you give up food for the day. I don't care if you tear your clothing. What I care is that you go out and do something, engage in social action, help people in need. And so I think one, that the Jewish community doesn't in enough places and with enough clarity make that point. And then as you know, just to get in my other argument here, I think that we also fall into the trap of being too focused on the service we can do for another person, which is one way of being active in the world, but not enough on what we can do to unearth the root causes of poverty and discrimination and fight those with advocacy at various levels of government. And I think that is also our responsibility. Um, and I would just quote Heschel on that, who said, if you live in a democracy where there are lots of wrongs you may not be guilty of having caused all of them but you are responsible for doing something about them
1: so moving from from the theoretical into the practical ruth i wonder if you would offer us some of your own thoughts on the recent situation on the upper west side that provoked so many strong feelings
2: all right well you know it's a very complicated story and i don't want to to disrespect people by not telling it fully, but I think it's, it's an example of, there is, there is poverty in the city of New York. There are people without homes. That, those problems are actually gonna get worse and not better. And um, there was a need half recognized by the city of New York to take people without homes who were living in a congregate shelter and move them um, out of the out of a place where they couldn't possibly be socially distanced and move them into neighborhood hotels throughout the city. That was the good news. I wanna say that the city did it really badly, didn't give people notice, didn't act transparently, but I also wanna say that the consequence was that the Upper West Side community suddenly found itself split with a group that were was very committed to this idea of taking care of the other. Many clergy, Jewish and Christian, who rallied um, with the elected officials to say, even though the city's implementing this badly, let's see what we can do. Let's put services together. Let's be welcome. We are a broad community. We can bring, bring new people in and try to help them, opposed by a group of people who I think were taken by shock and surprise. I think also are people living at a time when all of us have to recognize that this pandemic is taking a lot out of everybody, leaving people on edge. And that group responded fiercely and negatively, attacked the people who were being moved into the neighborhood, hired a lawyer, um, and then, and there's still an unfolding story right now, but threatened with a lawsuit by a private lawyer city caved in in what I consider to be an unacceptable way and started putting pressure on other populations in other neighborhoods and moving people around were then threatened with another lawsuit and then stopped moving people around. It's like a really bad soap opera. So I mostly wanna say that it highlights to me two things. One is that we don't get any place with a polarized citizenry. We don't get any place when we, when we fail to have leaders who can help us recognize and exercise our civic responsibility. And however you look at it, as a city, we have to rise better than we have, not just last week, last month, but better than we have in the 30 years or 40 years that I've known city government to respond to the challenge of helping people have shelter or of serving people who are without homes or of creating affordable housing. Those are big city issues complicated root causes, and if you don't take them on, then you suddenly get this move of this population or that move of another population. And, And everybody seems to forget that we're talking here about human beings. The particular group of people housed right now, still housed at the Lucerne, will end up having moved to four different places in three months because of frankly a bumbling and uh, a bumbling administration without the courage of its own convictions. So it's still it's still a story it's still a story being played out. I couldn't tell you what the latest detail is because something changes every few hours. But it shows to me the broad the broad social issues that we have to come to grips with in New York City, the importance and the importance of building neighborhood and community so that we can deal with changes, shocks, surprises, viruses, school closings, lots and lots of tough things that are going on now. But if people haven't been helped to come together, work on problems in a shared way, um, be the best they can be, then nothing is likely
1: to go well. So Ruth, having, having focused your thoughts on a particular situation, I wonder if you'll step back with me for a moment to look on a broader horizon. This Rosh Hashanah coming feels very different for all of us for so many reasons. Obviously the pandemic has created unusual and difficult circumstances but the thing is that on a on a grand scale the world feels like it's in complete disarray. There's the virus of course but the fires on the west coast Floods, droughts, hurricanes, political instability. People have said that it feels like we're living in a time of plagues of biblical proportion. What do you say to that?
2: Um, Well, it certainly is a weird holiday. Uh, I'm not even making a brisket um, because I don't have the 20 people who usually come over for dinner. But I'm gonna go back to what I was saying a little bit about before and you just dramatize it in a larger way. I wanna say two things. One is. That, that this is a year in which everyone is stretched out, in which I think a word that isn't used quite enough, and I hope that people who are assembled tonight will think about it for themselves. Everyone is to some degree grieving something. We all, you may love some things about, you know, going to work in your pajama pants or whatever, but, but we've all lost pieces of our routine um, connections with family and friends. And that takes something out of everybody and it means that people are quite stretched out. So that makes the, the regular rhythm and routine of uh, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, it seems to me particularly important. We have to pause, we have to remember the good things about the year more now than usual, um, because we have to strengthen our capacity to deal with the, not only the crises that we're in the middle of, but those that are are still to come so from some ways it's this holiday comes at a time when it's important to pause and to sort of reconnect with not only what was good about the year but with the tasks that are going to be confronting us going forward we need to build our our own and other people's resilience and dedication to as it were helping to heal the world um but i also want to say that you were dramatic enlisting um, the other plagues. Um, We're exempt right now from the worst of the fires and floods that are tormenting people around the country in the middle of the pandemic. And sadly, as you know, and I'm sure everyone um, in this um, gathering tonight knows, those problems are happening because we have neglected to look at root causes, we've neglected to take the dimensions of climate change seriously. And it seems um, like just one more, it may seem like just one more plague, but in this case, actually there's human agency behind each of these that could have eliminated it or could have made it better. If you really look at the statistics on COVID-19, this country is doing worse than almost any other country in the world. And since we are the richest country in the world, that's a particular and dramatic um, sadness, and it has to do with people not having acted thoughtfully, not having um, taken the real measure of some of the medical, um, scientific threats that, that, to use the right word, that plague us. So yeah, it's a very tough year, and I think we need to understand the number of things that we're going to have to come together to deal with, and hopefully, in some ways, use the... Holiday, holiday to build some strength. It's also the case, which I know that you at Groundless have been building for a while, but that there are different ways for people to come together in different places, and some shuls are actually discovering some aspects of the strength of their of their shul communities by going online, by having to think and rethink everything they've done, by finding it's possible to cut an hour out of the service, not always a bad idea, sometimes a good idea. So, um, It's not a bad time to just re-examine the small details and the bigger issues in our communities.
1: My last question for you, Ruth. Would it be too bold to ask if you would share with us maybe a couple of items on your New Year resolutions?
2: Sure. And I'd actually start with what I was just talking about, which is not activist, which is pause. So for everybody. Recognize the level of anxiety, fear, uncertainty, grief that is part of your life right now. Recognize how many things have changed, how unsettling that is. I sort of say to people every day from family members to friends to therapists, it's really weird for me to be dealing with something that I have no idea either when it will end or what the end will look like. I find that really unsettling and I suspect I'm not alone. But then after you recognize those feelings, um, yeah, there's a huge charge. Um, I think we've learned, you just gave an example with the fires, but I think that we've learned about things that have been there all along but are newly exposed. So climate change, dangers from climate change Um, the vast differences in healthcare in this country for people of color and in poorer communities, the universe of people that we too often choose not to see who are essential workers who live from paycheck to paycheck, whose lives are currently, and this is gonna get worse, I'm afraid, be torn apart by new and rising levels of food insecurity and loss of homes. And then the ugly racism and race-based violence in our country the inability, the current inability of most of our police departments to treat people equally. And that's what's been exposed in the last six months. What's been exposed in the last three and a half years is the failure of leadership, the immense danger of people not taking our democracy seriously, of all of us and not getting enough of us to choose our leaders wisely. So after we pause, after you use the holiday to recenter yourself, there are many, many ways that each of us needs to be working to expand our work for justice and equity right here at home. You know that I'm interested in the global world, but I'm talking right now about right here at home. There are lots of things to do to help heal our own world. And this is not a New Year's resolution. This is a today resolution. This begins tomorrow. There are 49 days left in which to ensure that everyone you know is voting. There are lots of ways to participate in that effort to strengthen our democracy. Telephone calls, postcards, calling your friends, organizing your own voting plan, helping people get to the polls. I'm just going to say from my personal and of course nonpartisan point of view, there's nothing more important to do right now than to figure out ways to make a difference in the election on November 3rd so that we can then organize to work on all of the other issues that we discussed tonight.
1: Ruth, I know how busy you are, how dedicated you are, both to your endless work and to your wonderful family. And now I know also, so importantly, how dedicated you are to yourself, to the rest and rejuvenation that you, by your own admission, um, you know, have said that we should all take the time uh, to indulge in right now. And I just want to say how grateful I am that you took the time to be here with us tonight. You have taught us not just about who you are, but you have shared with us who we really have the capacity and the responsibility to be, too. And in that, you've given us a perfect gift for the holiday. Thank you so much. We look forward Thank to standing you. with you, not just behind you, but with you in okay, all that you've well, said for I, us
2: today. I count on everyone doing that. I count on you continuing to lead ground waves in this wonderful way. And I give a special shout out to my friend Vicki Abrams, with whom I'm privileged now to work many times a week.
1: Wow. Well, we uh we look forward to being a part of the change that you are bringing to the world ruth thank you shana tova to you and your family you. sweet healthy happy new year for you and for us all
2: thank you. you too. thank you
1: If there's anything that this pandemic has taught us, it's the undeniable intertwining of the fate of all human beings. We rise and fall together. Our personal choices impact the health and well-being of the people all around us. And the stakes are life and death. Caring for ourselves means caring for others. Taking risks with ourselves means putting others at risk. Woe to all of us, individuals and as a society, if we fail to learn this lesson, if we fail to be changed by this pandemic. See, too many see the options that I alluded to in my opening words tonight as mutually exclusive. Either I'm for myself or I'm for everyone. We forget that we as individuals are part of everyone, that we as a faith are part of the faithful, that we as a people are part of the human family. And we forget that to nurture tikkun, healing for everyone, is to nurture tikkun within ourselves. In the upcoming Torah readings for Rosh Hashanah, we see the consequences of the more myopic view. In the reading about Sarah and Hagar, Sarah can only see the destiny she wants for herself, her son, and her husband. And so she exiles an innocent woman and her child, risking their lives and helping to seed millennia of conflict. In the reading of the Akedah, the binding of Isaac, Avraham can only hear the voice of God as it speaks to him and is deaf to the cries and the yearnings of his loved ones around him. The Torah shares these stories with us to warn us of the dangers of thinking only about ourselves. For most of us, the hardest part of linking our own fate to that of another is the discovery that in order to do so, we have to be willing to rethink, we have to be willing to reshape our vision and our choices. Lurianic Kabbalah describes the origins of the universe as a shattering of earthly vessels that couldn't contain the overwhelming presence of God. And so God retracted and limited the divine presence in the world so that we could survive. All of our acts of kindness and compassion serve to heal the broken shards of the earth that contain fragments of the divine, and hence the well-worn term for social action, tikkun olam, literally the repair of the world. I understand this story somewhat differently. Like our Torah readings, the mystical creation story illustrates the danger of any single presence, even God's, attempting to overwhelm another. The inevitable result is destruction. God's self-limiting, or it seems to him, is an example for humankind to follow in order to balance the call to be true to oneself while making room for another to be true to their own calling, to their own dreams. That the ultimate state of being as a people is not the fulfillment of our own abilities and aspirations, no matter how noble or generous they may be, but our ultimate state of being is one in which We are constantly refining our own sense of purpose and mission in relation to the purpose and mission of others who share our commitment to the freedom and dignity of every human being. And often this requires making ourselves smaller. For some partners, it might mean rethinking a career move in light of the family's needs. For some parents, it might mean letting go of the dreams that we've had for our children in order to allow them the space to envision and pursue their own goals. For some friends, it means loosening some of the demands or expectations we have of one another in order to be able to receive the more realistic gifts that we're able to give each other. In the realm of social justice, it means not just giving or volunteering or advocating, it means listening, it means honoring other people's needs and goals. Martin Buber reminds us that every single human being born into this life represents something unique and original that never existed before. And just as we each represent something or possess an essence that no one else ever has, we have to realize that if we impose ourselves on another and try to mold them into us, we diminish not just their uniqueness, but we diminish our own. And therein lies the sacred paradox of Tikkun, by honoring the distinctiveness and dignity of ourselves in addition to each and every other human being. We promote the indivisible bond that unites us all, and we honour our shared, undeniable humanity. That's beautiful, imagine. My friends, next week on Ground Waves, we're going to welcome Rabbi Daniel Siegel, who will reflect with me on the centrality of our relationship to the earth for our spiritual and our physical renewal that we seek this season. Of course, against the backdrop of so many ways and places in which our earth is under assault and our fellow human beings, it could not come at a, at a more important time. So please join us next week, Rabbi Daniel Siegel. This coming Wednesday night will be the last of our Elul sessions. Our Elul learning sessions have been really wonderful. We've had such a diverse array of teachers, Rabbi Kapers Funye, Rav Chaim Ovadia, and this Wednesday night, Rachel Brody, who's the senior educator at the Jewish Studio Project, will be teaching on Slichot, our prayers of, of forgiveness and supplication, and the power of words in Jewish tradition. That'll be at 7 p.m. this Wednesday night. Please do register. The link to do so is on the emails that you all receive. And every Wednesday night following that, Sha'ars Beit Midrash will be meeting. We'll be having three special sessions on issues raised by the pandemic. We'll be looking at the issue of mortality, the issue of how our values have undergone a period of clarification in the way that we've had to change our lives in the last six months, and we'll look also at our relationship to God. Those are the three weeks in between um, Rosh Hashanah and Sukkot, and then we'll start every Wednesday night from then on our Justice Beit Midrash. High holiday services are going to be live streamed from Sha'ar. Um, even before Ruth said anything, we made the decision our services will be running from 10 to 12 two-hour services. Everyone is welcome. To, um, to join us free of charge, please again look at your emails where there is information about signing up for the download of a Machzor, the High Holy Day Prayer Book. Our services will be professionally produced and live streamed from our Facebook page, from our website, and from our YouTube channel. So please do sign up and, uh, and share it with anyone you know who may enjoy coming to our music filled, spirit filled. Services and who may want to be with you as well. We uh, always have special guests and speakers who join us over the high holidays. I'm so proud to share that Reverend Michael Sanders, together with his wife A.J., will be joining us. Sunita Viswanath, um, a Hindu activist, will be joining us. Both of those, I should say, all three of those speakers on on our special second day Rosh Hashanah, very creative outdoor service, and on Mincha of Yom Kippur will be welcoming Tali Farhadian Weinstein, who is a professor, of criminal, a professor of criminal justice reform at NYU, who will be doing a shiur, a learning session on the quality of mercy in law enforcement. If you're not on our mailing list and you're with us tonight and you would like to be, please send an email to communities 2 at gmail.com and we'll be sure to include you on our distribution list. We're gonna to close tonight as always with a tefillah, with a prayer, which tonight is a Kavanah written by Rabbi Rami Shapiro. I am empty of permanence. I cannot endure. My days are limited and too few to fulfill the desires of my heart. I am so small and temporary And yet so important this pile of dust speaks this bag of skin thinks this frail body acts and makes a difference in the world what a gift i've been given and what a responsibility i am nothing and yet for my sake did the world come to be i am nothing and yet because of me others rise and fall I am the only me that has ever been. Whatever I must do, I must do here and now. Whatever gift I am to give, I must give it here and now. Whatever purpose I am to fulfill, I must fulfill it here and now.
0: I'm gonna go
1: to everyone. Good night. I hope we'll see you Wednesday night. If not, I wish you all a Shana tova, Sweet, healthy, happy new year may it be a new beginning of healing and hope for all the world. Thank you for being with us. Laila tov. Thank you, Dan. Thank you, Ruth.